All right. Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 18, please. Chapter 18 brings us to the Lord's fourth major discourse. The topic of the discourse is prompted by the disciples' desire to know who was the greatest in the kingdom between the twelve. <laughs> a topic that um, is repeated more than once and probably was a very uh, important topic every day. They had received different privileges. Um, they had been with the Lord for a little bit over three years now. And uh, it's only natural as far as the sinful nature to initiate a pecking order. That sinful man. You have to work at not going there. It's natural to go there. So that's why we are commanded to walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The entire chapter focuses on the relationship of Christians to each other through humility. Thinking of others more highly than themselves and a willingness to impart loving forgiveness, thereby being actually the greatest in the kingdom. It's not what you do. God's not impressed with what you do because he's the one that does it. He's impressed why and how you do it. Is it because you love him? Is it because you love his people? Or is it because you love the praise of men? And that's really the way God looks at things. It's an upside-down kingdom. Here in the world, you have a pyramid, and everybody's striving to get up on top, and then they're t knocking people off so they can stay on top. The kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God is an upside-down pyramid. You work your way up by going down. It's just totally different. And so here in chapter 18, verse 1 through 6, we have the question of greatness, the parallel passages, uh, Mark 9, 33 to 37, Luke 9, 46 through 48. And the disciples asked the question at that time, notice that in verse 1 there, when Peter sought the tax money from the fish's mouth, the previous chapter. As they come down from the mount from the previous chapter there, and all of chapter 18, it's all one day. Okay? The disciples came to Jesus, it says, and Jesus had already mentioned his death two times in Matthew 16, 21 and 17, 22. They're having a difficult time with this, remember. They asked, saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Mark tells us that Jesus asked them their com conversation as they were um, going to the house of Capernaum there, and they remained silent. In Mark 9, 33 and 34. As if Jesus didn't know their thoughts. In fact, Luke 9, 47 tells us that he perceived their thoughts in their hearts. I almost did the message of greatness this morning. But I'm going to save it to chapter 20 because we're going to take it when their mommy comes in and asks it. Because we don't have the... Church discipline again, so I took advantage of that this morning. But here again, the conversation seems to preoccupy these men all the time. So much so that the last time they are uh, talking about this, as far as is recorded, is right when Jesus is going to have the Passover. When he's going to go die for them. And that, that's still the topic. That's why he washes their feet. And gives them that example. In verse 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus 
answered the question. Jesus chooses, notice, the perfect object to illustrate disciple greatness. Then Jesus called the little child to him and set him in their midst. Now, some think this is Peter's son in the house, but it's speculation. It's not told us. It's amazing what people put in their commentaries. Inductive means you only record what is in there, not what you think is in there. You don't open a drawer up and you see a bunch of silverware, spoons, forks, and knives, and you say, man, that's a nice-looking frying pan. There's not a frying pan in there. Okay? It's inductive Bible study. One is exegesis. The other one is putting things in eisegesis. In. Notice then he took a child. Mark 9.36 says he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him into his arms, Matthew doesn't tell you all these details. So he took the child, stood him there, and then he took him into his arms and he began to teach them. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Notice, think about the words. Here in verse 3, and said, Assuredly I say to you, unless you are converted and become as a little child, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the disciples that are already born again. Think. If there's no question about this, why would you confront them with such a warning? Wow. What a novel idea to ask why. The word converted, strefo, means to turn oneself around, to change one's mind regarding ambition for greatness. This is not the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's in our flesh, but it's not part of the new nature. The lesson, as a little child here, refers to being humble, teachable. Trust him, even though we know that your children and mine are just little rotten sinners. But when they're young, they're pliable, right? They're like wet cement. Once your cement, if you're a mud man, once your cement dries up, drop the trawls, the pads, come back and break it out tomorrow. You only have a certain amount of time to work the mud. You only have a certain amount to work with your children. Then they become hard cement. You've got to take advantage of it, ladies and gentlemen. Very important. So he uses the illustration of a child. And because of the innocence and the trusting of a father, towards a father or a mother, this is the things that he brings out. Jesus says to his disciples, you will by no means a double negative enter the kingdom of heaven. They've already accepted him. But if they keep on in this course of attitude, they're not really walking in the characteristics of a disciple. He's not speaking to anybody but them. Verse 4 through 6, the one who is the greatest then is dealt with. Jesus makes the concluding statement in verse 4. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is from the first coming to the second coming, right? The kingdom of God is much wider. It includes the whole reign of God even into eternity. 
The one who humbles himself like this little child is the greatest. Underline this verse. It's a key verse. This is a key verse to the whole chapter. This is it. He's speaking to his disciples. The disciple would have to turn from pride and envy to humility and servanthood. First Peter 5, 5 through 6, it speaks about, um, about being servants in the right attitude, in the right way. Shepherding the church of God. Not by constraint, not for fully look, but of a ready mind. All of that. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us. Paul warns the Corinthians, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. All these warnings, ladies and gentlemen, are to Christians, not non-believers. You do not warn dead people. You warn live people. You evangelize dead people so they can come alive. Is that clear? Notice the truth of receiving another believer in true humility is in verse 5. It says, whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. In my name speaks of his nature, his love, his compassion. The severe judgment over one who would lead a believer who believes in Jesus to sin is then dealt with in verse 6. Now, though he's using the little child as the illustration, when he moves from there, he's using the little one for a believer, a disciple of Jesus, not literal children, though certainly that would be a horrible sin. Okay? He's talking about believers, disciples, this whole chapter. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Jesus, meek and mild. Today, much of the emergent church and the seeker-friendly and the liberal aspect of the church say, well, we don't want to argue about doctrine. We just want to love one another. We don't want to be judgmental. Well, and they say they're being like Jesus. Really? Uh, Jesus is pretty caustic here when it comes to sin and tripping up a believer, right? He makes judgments. In fact, he pronounces judgment against such individuals. The sin means to cause a believer who believes in Jesus to sin, losing their innocence and practice sin. How much more a little child, if you want to take that extension, but the believer. One put it this way. This verse and the next contemplates the possibility of a little one cause a stumble and loss from the life of discipleship. How many people have been led astray by others, whether it be believers or non-believers, who have just departed from God or destroyed their lives, that they will have to give an account to God? See, some people, they just 
there's a phrase that Bonhoeffer used to say, though he's a neo-orthodox, I really don't like to use him as a quote, but it's a great phrase, cheap grace. Some people just want to just put everything under grace and, you know, God is, you know, and, and they don't take any personal responsibility as if God is just going to just wink at it and that they have a license to sin and do whatever they want and, you know, it doesn't really matter. Because all of my sins were in the future anyway and they were all forgiven before I even came to be, so therefore they're all taken care of. Be careful you don't deceive yourself. That's not what the Bible teaches. The punishment by a stone mill around the neck and drowned in the depths of the sea is an extreme way of execution. Yet it is nothing to what awaits him or her at the white throne judgment for causing a believer to be destroyed or to walk away from Christ. This stone mill, there's, there's two stone mills. The one that's a small one, little thing that you just grind up stuff with. And the huge one, probably six foot or so, about that thick. They tie it with a big pole to a donkey or an ox, and they tread around for the wheat. That's the stone that Jesus is speaking about right here, okay? Mulos. If you know Spanish, mula is mule, okay? <laughs> Same root. A huge stone. And let me tell you, you were sure to not come up from the bottom of the sea. And that's a horrible way to die. What do you say to Jesus, meek and mild? Is he being unloving? Is he being uncompassionate here? Are you more compassionate than he? You see, many in the church today think they are. By being all-inclusive without calling people to repentance. By not making judgments. They are saying we're more just, we're more compassionate, we're more loving than the Bible. Hmm. Look at 7 through 14, the warning against offenses to one of God's children. The parallel passages again, Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 48, and Luke 17, 12. In verse 7, the warning to those in the world. The proclamation, woe to the world because of offenses, woe stands for severe warning and judgment here. The world speaks of the unregenerated population, those who um, are not born again, they're not disciples. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says... Uh, that we were dead in trespasses and sins and we were living our life according to the prince and the power of the air. Children of disobedience by nature. Evil. The word offense is scandalon. means a movable stick or a trigger on a trap. In other words, any impediment placed to cause a believer a disciple of Jesus Christ to stumble or stray from Christ. Any of those things. And there's, you've been in the world. There's many of them. Yet people drunk, get them loaded, take advantage of them sexually or corrupt them or drag them into something that's dishonest and they don't know it. 
whatever. We are experts at all of that. <laughs> and he warns and says, you mess with one of my children, you will have to give an account to me. You forget that our God is Jewish. He keeps good books. He doesn't forget a thing. In verse 7, still the individual judgment is given for offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offenses comes. The offenses must come is the godless world that is bent towards opposing God. The world does not believe in God. The world defines their own God after their own likeness, after their own opinions, but not according to the Bible. They reject the God of the Bible. How often have you spoken to somebody and told them about the Lord? And they say, well, if that's the type of God, I don't want to do it. Like if, you know, God's going to be biting his nails over it. I'm worried about it. Because they want to shape their God according to their own likeness. Corrupt. They, don't, they can't believe in a God who would judge. They believe in a God who's loving and wouldn't judge. Well, that's a corrupt God. If God is holy, he has to judge. His holiness demands his judgment. His judgment demands his holiness. Simple. And if your God doesn't judge, then he can't be holy and he can't be good. He's got to be just like you. Rotten. Full of sin. Notice, but woe to the man, the individual who destroys or leads one astray from Christ. Eternity is the emphasis in the text here. I think of school educators, teachers, professors who destroy the faith of many who attend their universities to corrupt and destroy their innocence and their purity. Instructing and indoctrinating regarding evil. Keep that big stone in mind. Wow. Verse 8 through 10, the severity of sin in a person's life is dealt with. Jesus says that sin is eternally destructive. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maim, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Now, Jesus is not speaking literally but figuratively to emphasize the importance of eternity and the seriousness of sin and the destruction it brings. Jesus already mentioned this in chapter 5, 29 and 30. Because if you cut your right hand off, you've got a left, right? Now, one of the church fathers uh, took this literal and he castrated himself. And then within time, he realized he interpreted it wrong. Foolish. He's not talking literally. He's making the emphatic point about the destructiveness of sin and how serious eternity is. This is the first time everlasting fire is mentioned in Matthew. Judgment. 
Notice in verse 9, Jesus repeats himself for emphasis, teaching that sin manifests itself in our members because of our evil hearts. Listen. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Same concept, same thing, emphatic. But where's all this sin coming from? It's, it's manifest through our members, but it comes from our heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is sinful, desperately wicked. Matthew 15, we, we saw that, that it's from the heart that proceeds evil thoughts, fornications, adulteries, everything else. Many times people say, well, you know, I've been real educated and I can't believe in God. You're not that smart. The problem is not your brains, it's your heart. My heart. That's the problem. Jesus is teaching that nothing is worth being cast into hellfire, literally Gehenna, for eternity separates a person from God. Your choice. Everybody's going to live forever. The thing is, you, you're the one that decides whether you live with God or separated from God. It's like buying a house. Location, location, location. It makes a big difference. You want to make sure you're going to be in the right location after you die. That depends on what you believe about Jesus Christ. And whether you live a life like Christ as a disciple of Christ or not. It's very, very clear. Now, Gehenna is the lake of fire created for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41 says there's different places that are... That are um, Stated different names. The word um, Sheol in, in Hebrew and Hades in Greek is the same place as the temporary abode for those who died before Christ, sometimes called the grave in the Old Testament. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Sheol or Hades was a twofold compartment the place of comfort and the place of torment, also called paradise in the bosom of of Abraham. Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus descended to the Lord's bar, scooped him up, and took him to heaven. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Colossians 2, 15, 1 Peter 3, 19 through 21. Very, very clear. Now, Sheol or Hades is one compartment because Jesus transferred all of those who died in faith to heaven. The third heaven. So now it's one compartment of all those who have died after the resurrection. If they die without Christ, they go directly to Hades. We usually call it hell. And the person who dies in Christ is instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. His body goes to the grave. His spirit goes before the Lord. At the rapture, his body will be joined with his spirit in a glorified body. Not till then. There's also the pit, the shaft, or the bottomless pit. It's a place of incarcerated spirits, the origin of the Antichrist. And Satan will be bound there for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom. Revelation 8, 1 and 2, and verse 11. Revelation 11, 7 and 20, verse 1. The pit, Sheol, the bottomless pit. Now, Sheol, Hades, and death, and the beast, and the false prophet... 
and every person judged at the white throne judgment, that's at the end of the thousand years, after they are judged, they will be cast into the lake of fire, Gehenna. Revelation 19, 20, and chapter 20, verse 15. All the rest are those who have believed, who are born again, die saved, and are instantly present before the Lord, the bride of Christ. There's a great distinction. Now in verse 10 and 11, the warning against demeaning a believer. Notice it's like a telescope. He keeps extending it out. He stays on track with the topic of the little one, meaning a disciple, a believer. The stern warning comes in verse 10. Take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. To take heed means to beware. To not despise or disdain with contempt a believer. Looking down or thinking down on this person as if he has no value or importance. He makes a mention of their angels. Some believe that this is the doctrine for a guardian angel looking down on the children. But think with me. The little one is a real child for the illustration, but the little ones throughout the text is believers, right? So the doctrine that there's a guardian angel for children is really out of context here. Plus also Hebrews 1.14 and 13.2 and also Psalm 103.20 speaks about angels being ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. All the angels of God are ministering spirits on our behalf and for our benefit. In fact, Hebrews 13.2 says some have entertained angel unaware, right? So it's not just children, that's kind of the context. Everyone is a believer. Angels do God's bidding. The many in the Old Testament are there. One angel went out one night and killed them. 185,000 Assyrian frontline troops. Probably about three foot tall. Powerful angels. One angel. Can you imagine? Jesus could have called down legions. Wow. Notice the reason for the stern warning is due to the purpose behind the mission of Jesus to save the lost. In verse 11. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. That's his whole purpose of coming, to die for you, for myself, to redeem us. Now, some omit this verse because the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus, two, what I believe, corrupt texts, don't have it. The major scholars believe they are the better texts, but the evidence of the texts prove that they are the inferior texts because they have complete blots out and write outs and omissions and corrections. That would be an inferior text, not a superior text. It's real simple. When you made a mistake, you would burn it, bury it, or vanish it to the schools of the prophets. So, 
I reject that they reject this verse. <laughs> it's here. Luke 19.10 has it anyway, so it doesn't matter. Verse 12 through 14, the parable of the lost sheep is given. The parable uh, has a, a parallel passage in Luke 15, verse 3 through 7, as you know. And the parable is in the form of a rhetorical question, having only one correct answer. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains to seek the one that is strained? Yes, is the answer. If you say no, you just failed the test. The pictures of Jesus, the good shepherd, seeking out the lost sinners in John 10. Jesus rejoices over the repentance of one lost sheep. Verse 13. And if he should find it, assuredly I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. The whole context is astray because he's talking to disciples who know him. Okay? Jesus spoke three parables in Luke 15. The lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost sons. Two sons lost, not one. The parable of the prodigal is the climax of the three parables. They go together. And it's joy in heaven over one sinner. Many pastors teach the prodigal son as Christians who stray away and they come back to the faith. That is absolutely wrong. The prodigal son was never saved until he called out upon God from the pig's pen. The father told the other brother who never left the house, Son, your brother was lost. Now he's found. He was dead. Now he's alive. So when a pastor uses that for a Christian, go up and tell him that's speaking about a sinner, not a Christian. It's completely out of context. The lost condition of sinner is their own doing, not God's. Look at verse 14. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Any believer. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Second Peter 3, 9. Any of the people that are lost, but here the context is those who are saved. God does not force sinners to repent, nor does God force you to stay with him or abide with him. Sinners choose to, re to not repent and they choose to go to hell. Now you have all the right to go to hell, but you don't have to. You can go to heaven if you repent from your sins and call upon Jesus Christ. But he doesn't force you. You're not forced to walk with Jesus. Any more that a man or a woman can be forced to love a man or a woman in marriage. They can leave anytime they want, and they do. 
You can't force anybody. For love to have its value in its proper place, it must be voluntary. That's the only value in it. Apart from that, it has no value. Look at 15 through 20. The disciplinary actions for the sinning brother that we dealt with in death. So I'll just go through general commentary. The parallel passage is Luke 17, 3. And in 15, the first step for reconciliation, he's talking about church discipline here, about a sinning brother. The responsibility is on the innocent or the injured person to seek out the guilty. He says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. So the purpose is for reconciliation and giving forgiveness, not revenge. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. The word gain there is a commercial a, a, a term, a, a term of wealth. In other words, we are to hold each other in high value and esteem because you add to my life. You, you are in the family of God. You're my brother. You're my sister. We have the same mind. We have the same spirit. We have the same goals. We have the same understanding of God's word. If there is an acknowledgement, confession, forgiveness, then it's valuable reconciliation. It's accomplished with my brother or sister. James 5, 19 and 20 speaks about that also. 1 Peter 4, 8. Love hides a multitude of sins. The motive is agape love. The perspective and attitude is humility, esteeming somebody greater than myself, not looking down on them. Look at 16. The second step for reconciliation, having refused to acknowledge his fault, then um, the same person is to go back to that person. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. This comes out of Deuteronomy 19.15, the law, and 1 Timothy 5.19 and other passages also. To establish the biblical witness that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So you take two and three more so they can be a witness whether he will hopefully repent and acknowledge it or still refuse. So that words cannot be twisted or anything else. But going alone first one-on-one demonstrates your attitude of love and humility and that you're not there to embarrass them or to humble them or to get revenge or any but that you want to get right and your motivation is God's agape love Galatians 5 6 1 and 2 speaks about being reconciled confront one another spirit of meekness gentleness So the attitude is very important, the perspective. When you get to 17, you have the third and fourth step for reconciliation. Uh, Third, a person is to tell it to the church. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church there. Now, the church representatives, such as pastors and elders, is first. We have the first church council in Acts 15. And it says the church came together and the apostles uh, and, and Paul and them, they, they dealt with the matters of the uh, Gentiles, okay? So the church I take to interpret here, first of all, is the leadership. Once again, every time when you go by one, you go by two, by three, you're minimizing the amount of people that know the information to protect the guilty party as well as the innocent party from the other people so they don't 
begin to gossip or anything else so they can continue to fellowship. So your motive and everything behind it is to get to the core of things, to seek repentance, to seek the broken relationship without damaging or allowing carnality to take hold of the whole thing. Very important. And so here, if he refuses with the two and three here, then the church is brought in with the pastors and the elders. If that fails, then it would be before the congregation, which is really the last step because we take the church to mean the leadership and then with the extension, that would be the congregation. So if you refuse to heed the pastors and elders, then that's where we're at. I've never had to do that, but I'm to be willing and be obedient to do that if necessary. Then finally, if they still refuse, they are to be excommunicated. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The article's there. In other words, heathen or Gentiles and tax collectors were people that had nothing to do with God's people. They were cut off. Now remember, he's talking to one who has strayed. He's not talking about a lost person here. Talking about one who was a disciple. The church body from the pulpit is the last resort if there's no repentance. If there's a refusal, then there's excommunication. There's maybe two or three people that we've had to kick out of here in 38 years. <laughs> we don't want to do it. We don't like to do it, but we need to do it when we need to do it. That's important. You as a parent do the same thing with your children. You want the best for your children. You want to bless them. But if they're rebellious, disrespectful, if they're bringing destruction to themselves and the home, there may come a time when you have to ask them to leave. Not because you hate them. Because you love them and you know that others could be a danger for them, right? Others can judge you for that, but you're the one that lives in the home, right? You have to make that decision. There are examples in the New Testament, as you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5 or 7, where the um, young man, and I mentioned it this morning, was sleeping with his, um, the stepmother, the wife of his father. And the church of Corinth wasn't even to saying anything. They were just, oh, hey, how are you doing this and that? And Paul said, Wait, this thing is not even practiced by the Gentiles. It's frowned upon. And you guys haven't made judgment. He says, you know, I'm absent, but it's, even though I'm absent, it's like I'm present. I've already made my judgment. Hand this man over to, the, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So in other words, there comes a time when you have to excommunicate an individual that is sinning here and the sin is an actual sin and the sin is not just something casual. It's something that has been very destructive, very painful and something that's very offensive within the Lord. And so it's severe but necessary and Jesus is the one that's giving this. So if you object to that, you're telling Jesus that he really is lacking compassion here. 
Um, there are times when it has to be done. And yet it's not done with any sense of joy or anything else, but you're looking out for the church. Now, the interesting thing is that when Paul says to hand them over to Satan, notice that you don't hand non-believers over to Satan. They already belong to Satan. They're held captive at his will. You turn over believers who get caught up in sin and refuse to acknowledge it and repent in hope of repentance and restoration, even though their flesh is destroyed, hopefully their spirit may be saved. That's the whole goal behind it, okay? Not mere castigation. That's not what the scriptures teach. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 2, 3 through 11, this young man did repent, and then the Corinthians didn't want to in again, and Paul said, what's your problem? First of all, you don't confront him and kick him out. I have to tell you to do that. Now you don't want to let him back in. He's repented. But not everybody repents. Not everybody comes back. There's also the um, church discipline about people who are gossiping and not working at all in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. And Paul dealt with them and says, if anybody objects to the advice we're telling you, if you don't work, you don't need then have nothing to do with this guy. Now, don't count him as an enemy, but he's a brother, but make sure they're being disciplined. It's real simple. You as a parent discipline your children, right? They don't make their room. You go shopping, they just leave the refrigerator door open. Everything gets spoiled. Do you bless them? You go out and buy them a hot fudge Sunday? Same thing, ladies and gentlemen. No different. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.20 says, Those who are sinning, meaning sinning arrogantly, in spite of the warning and everything, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. 1 Timothy 5.20, that's pretty bold. And there are people like that at times. They think that they can do what they want and they can do, but not in the church. My question is, if you're going to scam on chicks, if you're going to commit adultery on your husband and wife, if you're going to be a liar or robbing, why you come to church? Go in the world. Do it out there. It won't be long yet because your clock cleaned. But it's our evil heart. It's greater judgment if you're doing it inside the church. To those that much is given, much more is required. And he warns us over and over again. Verse 18, the vested authority for church discipline. Jesus vested the authority to every believer, not to the leadership. The leadership is the end. It's to every believer. Assuredly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be bound in heaven. Binding and loosing means allowing and disallowing, permitting or not permitting, according to what the scriptures declare for disciplinary action. This is the context. Stay on trail with the context. The first church council, again, is the greatest example. The leadership first, then the church. This is often taught as authority to restrict the activities of Satan. I bind you, Satan. It's out of context. 
Do we have authority over Satan and demons and that? Yes. Ephesians chapter 6, the armor. 2 Corinthians 10, bringing every thought into captivity. And to come against uh, our weapons are not carnal but spiritual through the strongholds, bringing down strongholds. Um, but this is not what it's talking about. And how often people use this language, I bind you, Satan, or they say the blood of Jesus. Not one time will you find those phrases used to bind Satan or to restrict his activity. Paul doesn't use it, not using any of the epistles. It's just church tradition, okay? But don't walk out of here saying Xavier doesn't believe that we have authority over uh, the spirit world. We do have it, okay? But not in this context that it's talking about. It's just church culture. That's all it is. Now, verse 19 through 20, the vested authority for the church discipline is reaffirmed here. The standard of the word of God, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, so the word anything is a business term um, that deals with um, judicial actions, the business at, at hand, in the context is discipline. And it's a judicial term, and judgments are being made to this one who has offended another one, and you're trying to reconcile all things. So that's the context. It is confirmed and permitted by the Father. It will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Those that agree in harmony. We get the word sympathy, symphony from it, like musical instruments. Because these men are seeking God in prayer about the wisdom for the discipline, the approach, the attitude, everything. So they glorify Jesus when these actions are taking place. You understand? This is the context. Jesus is the head of the church to direct and guide his church. Verse 20 says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The context is church discipline. Stop and think about it. Where two or three are gathered, I'm there in the midst of them. If it's prayer that is talking about your petitions and prayer, does that mean when you don't have someone with you, he doesn't hear you? He's not in the middle with you? <laughs> but if you're talking about church discipline, it fits perfectly, right? So context is very, very important. 21 through 35, you have the question on forgiving others. The parallel passage is Luke 17, 4. This um, uh, verses 23 down to 35 are unique of, of Luke, um, as well as the, um, uh, the passage that we just covered on church discipline. Humility is the foundation for forgiveness, which is evidence of greatness as we began the chapter. Verse 21, the question is asked by Peter. He says, for we're... Two or three are gathered together in, the, in my name. I am there in the midst of them, he said earlier. Peter declares that he went beyond the approach here. He speaks about forgiving seven times, okay? And yet, this was a rabbinical teaching. We find it in the Old Testament, perhaps thinking that he would prove himself spiritual. Because the topic is the greatest in the kingdom, right? And all of a sudden, Peter says, you know, I, I, 
and he, and he goes on. The reproof of Peter by Jesus is there in 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Many commentators put seven times seven. No, it's 70 times seven, 490 times. The idea is you don't keep count. Okay? If that person asks you to forgiveness, what are you to do? You're to forgive. I can't do that. You got it. You got it. You cannot do that. Not one of us can forgive. Oh, we can minor thing with, oh, don't worry about it. But I mean, when I do you wrong, really wrong, then the test comes. If it costs you, the test comes. Jesus shows Peter that he's not as spiritual as he thought or wanted everybody else to think. Jesus shows forgiveness is not a matter of arithmetic, but of the heart problem. Someone made the parallel with Lamech avenging seven times 70 in Genesis 4, 24. Just the opposite. 23 to 35, you have the parable of the unforgiving servant, the wicked servant. He illustrates this through this parable. By the way, this parable is not here for us to criticize the wicked servant. The parable is here to know that you and I are the wicked servant. Okay? Very important. At least in capacity. Whether we literally do that, that's another matter. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with the servant. Verse 23. The kingdom of God, the king is Jesus, the servant, anyone who has accepted Jesus. Here is a court official, not a common slave, okay? One with great ability and responsibility. 24 says, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. A horrendous debt owed. 10 to 20 million dollars. And it keeps changing with the years that I'm teaching because money keeps inflating, Okay. But there's no way he could ever pay it back. Which demonstrates this man's greed and dishonesty. Greed makes you dishonest. You want just a little more. Nothing is enough. But as he was not able to pay, verse 25 says, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The debt was to be paid by selling them. They are his possessions. He's not able to pay. It's collateral. There was a time in Europe when they had debtor's prison. You didn't just claim bankruptcy. You went to jail. Today you claim bankruptcy. I pay your bankruptcy. Through inflation and taxes. All these DMV cards for food and everything else they hand out and cell phones through Obama. 
We pay for it. The taxpayer. Government doesn't have any money. It's our money. (laughs) Government works for us. Something's gone screwy here. The tables have been turned. You see, tonight I'm teaching. I should be sitting. You should be standing. That's why it's easy to find out who falls asleep. How did this get turned around? Interesting. This was according to the law in Exodus 22.3 and Leviticus 25.39 and 47. 26 and 27, the pleading of the servant to have an opportunity to pay the debt is given. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him, asking, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Wow. He gave an outward evidence of humility. Many people do when they get busted. The servant gave his word to repay the debt. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. This is a parable. God is the master. We are this wicked servant. In 28, the servant, in genuineness, repentance is demonstrated. It's not sincere. But that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. This is evidence of the lack of compassion and pride, refusing to forgive in spite of all that was forgiven him. A denarii was a day's wage, Matthew 20, verse 2 tells us. So this is three months' wages. Compared to what he owed, a dollar compared to a million. <laughs> He took him by the throat, a practice permitted by Roman law, and dragged him to the magistrate. 29 through 30, the fellow servant pleaded to be patient. So his fellow servant in 29 fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me. I will pay you all. The very words he said to the master. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Here he manifested his pride, his uncompassion. He's the least in the kingdom. He's not greatest. Wow. The fellow servant witnessed the injustice. In 31, the servant was grieved, knowing all that had been forgiven him, and he rightly accused him before his master. He says, so when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all 
that had been done. And the master recalls the sermon in 32. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. You accuse him of being wicked in heart, evil. He reminded the evil servant of the mercy, the privilege he had received being forgiven because he begged his master. So the master pointed out his personal responsibility to forgive as he had been forgiven. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? The master is God. The servant is you and I. 34, the master declared the consequences of his evil heart. And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. When we have a guilty conscience, there will be a lack of peace and joy, failing health, even mental instability. Think of our society today. So much mental care. Wow. Fear of looking for God's fiery indignation to be cast into Gehenna. The closer you get to death, the more you think about, I wonder what there is after this. Verse 35 gives us the application, and it's to the disciples. One who has received forgiveness, not the unbeliever. Is that clear? Listen carefully. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, talking to the dirty dozen, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This is nothing new, but taught in the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 24 through 26. He's already touched on in Matthew 6, 14 through 15, Ephesians 4, 32, Colossians 3, 12 through 14, James 2, 13, 1 Peter 3, 7, and many, many others. It's over and over and over again. Now, having said all this, let me say this. There are people who, regardless of how much you want to reconcile, they keep rejecting, refusing it. My responsibility and yours is to do all that I can to seek that reconciliation. Do all that is in my power to do so. And if they refuse it, then there comes a point when I just continue to pray for them and let the Lord take care of it. Okay? And there are other people who will tell everybody, oh, yeah, no, I, I want to get right. And, you know, he just doesn't want it. They're lying. And you have to just rest in the Lord. And know that God knows the truth, okay? There are some people that are just scammers, man. Not in the world. Though we know they're there. <laughs> but I'm talking in the church. Remember the woman at Simon's house is a perfect example as well as the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying far off. Simon says if he would know what manner of woman she was, he wouldn't 
touch her, he wouldn't allow her to touch him. Jesus said, Simon, I have someone to say to you. Say, say on, Master. He says, um, there was two debtors, and the Master forgave them both. One had X amount of money. The other one had so much more that owed him. Which do you think will love the most? Simon thought he was smug. He said, well, the one who owed the most says, you see this woman? She loves much because she hasn't forgiven much. See, Simon saw a whore. Not a forgiven woman. The tax collector wouldn't even look up. He just hit in his chest. Lord, be propitious to me. The Pharisee says, eh, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. This tax collector and a woman. Jesus says, this man justified himself. This other man went down justified. Wow. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you can answer your own question. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? This chapter gives you an A or an F. One of the two. Doesn't it give you an F plus? It's just an F. You fail. Lord, thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Thank you for your word, for your mercy, your grace over our life. Thank you for every person here, Lord, and those over the radio, and also, Father, over the internet. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, regardless of what has happened in your life, if you believe Jesus Christ became sin for you, died in your place and rose from the dead, then the Bible says that he can save you. He will forgive you. He will make you his son or his daughter by grace through faith. It's through repentance, recognizing that you agree with God who you are, lost, sinner, and that he is in the business of saving lost sinners and that you call on his name and if you desire to be saved this is your prayer to the Lord as you repent to him not to us Father I come to you in Jesus name I ask you to forgive me Lord for all my sins give me a brand new heart fill me with your spirit I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.